And this morning, we're going to cover verses 1 through 15, because chapter 17 is like an important chapter and a very lengthy chapter, so I decided to break it into two sermons. So Acts chapter 17, you could stand for the reading of God's Word. We're just going to read verses 1 through 4, and um, then we'll go from there. The scripture reads, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. The title of my sermon this morning is A Tumult and a Study. May God use it for good. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in you and give thanks to you that we have this time in your word, that we're able to preach through this book of Acts, and in this narrative see some, just a little picture of what all the early church did and how Christianity transformed the Roman Empire. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would use what's preached here for good to light a fire in the heart of each one, to desire to know you more and to serve you greater. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Could be seated. In our last sermon, we had seen the conversion of yet another magistrate in chapter 16. Paul and Silas are on Paul's second missionary journey, and they stopped in Philippi in Macedonia. Remember, there was the specific call to Macedonia. As Julia pointed out, they were doing it because it's what God commands us to do, go and tell people about him. Amen? But at times, there is a specific call to a specific place, and they were specifically called to Macedonia. And it wasn't all roses. <laughs> Just because God calls you to something doesn't mean it's going to be all roses. Trouble ensued due to a woman that made money for men through demonic divination. Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, and the magistrate, the keeper of the prison, converts to Christ and his whole family, you may recall. So chapter 16 ends with Paul, Silas, and company leaving Philippi. And um, do we have the slide here? Because I want to show where people were headed. And I don't know where my little boingy, pointy thing went, but maybe I left it in my coat. Uh, this thing went all the way to Mexico and back. Um, so anyway, you may recall the first journey started in Antioch. It's where like the Gentile Christians hang out. And they went all the way up here and got to here and came down here and came back. This second journey, you can see, we've already pointed out, goes way, way further away. So there's Philippi. And as the scriptures have said, they go through Amphipolis, down through Apollonia, over to Thessalonica. Just to give you a little idea, and as um, our verses continue, they'll make it from Thessalonica over here to Berea, and that's where we'll stop in today's sermon. So 
Amphipolis was 33 miles southwest of Philippi. And though it was larger and more important than Philippi, Paul and Silas passed by it. They also passed through Apollonia, which was some 27 miles past Amphipolis. Their desire was to get to Thessalonica, which was the capital of the province of Macedonia. Macedonia is part of the Roman Empire and was the largest and most prosperous city in all of Macedonia. Thessalonica was. Remember my sermons out of Micah? The very first one, entitled Addressing Those Who Possess Political Power, talked about how God often sent his prophets to the capitals of the nations to preach. And here is Paul and Silas going to the capital of Macedonia. Thessalonica was another 40 miles past Apollonia, so this was a 100-mile trek from Philippi to Thessalonica. And remember, they had just been beaten back in Philippi. Thessalonica was, even though they were called, yeah, it doesn't mean it's a bread of roses, right? Thessalonica was strategically situated on the Theramaic Gulf, in what we call today the Thracian Sea. The city was founded in 315 B.C. by the Macedonians, so it was over 300 years old when Paul and Silas arrived. The Romans conquered Macedonia in 167 B.C., and Thessalonica became the capital of Macedonia in 142 B.C. The city sided with Mark Antony and Octavian, who would later become known as Augustus Caesar, during the Second Roman Civil War and was therefore declared a free city for its loyalty in 42 B.C. Thessalonica was big, estimated at 200,000 people, so it attracted a diverse group of people, as all huge metropolises tend to do, including Jews. So there was a synagogue there. So verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And verse 2 says, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. This was their custom. They went to the Jew first and then to the Greek. To the Jew first, then to the Gentile. If there was a synagogue, they always went there first. Remember in Philippi, going back, one of the little towns there, there was no synagogue. There wasn't enough Jews, but they still sought them out near that river where they would gather to pray because there was no synagogue. This was their custom. And this was strategic of Paul, because where will they find those who they have a common ground with? But the synagogue. Start there and then expand. Here are people who already have an understanding of and believe in God. So it's a no-brainer to start there in a geographical area, hit the Jews and the God-fearers, and then move on to the pagans. And notice they quote-unquote reasoned with them and quote-unquote explained to them, and quote-unquote demonstrated to them that Christ had to die for the sins of men and that he rose from the dead. The simple gospel message is what they brought to Thessalonica. They proclaimed Christ 
Verse 4 says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. So some of them were persuaded by their reasoning and their explaining. Reasoning and explaining is a part of preaching the gospel. Did you hear that? Reasoning and explaining is a part of preaching the gospel. Helping men to understand the gospel, see the evidence for the gospel, answering their objections or questions is part of preaching the gospel. Some say just preach and do none of what I just said, but that's utter nonsense and it's unbiblical, as we see here. Ultimately, it comes down to an individual either believing or rejecting the message of the gospel, but that does not mean our only duty is to just give the brief message of it without the other. And of course, Luke was just giving us the highlights. So we don't know what all this explaining and demonstrating was, but there seemed to have been plenty of it from the Word of God. So some were persuaded, and a large number of those persuaded were Greeks. The word used here would include both the God-fearers and the pagan Greeks. But this led to problems. Verse 5, it says, But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and, gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. Notice evil men exist. I know that's a, that's a shocking thing to most Christians these days because they live in their little spiritual cocoons. But evil men do exist. Actual, they're not just lost souls wandering about. There's actual evil people that exist. Wicked to the core. And the Jews, who were not persuaded, used these evil men for their purposes and attacked the house of Jason, which was obviously where Paul and Silas were staying while in the city. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, the magistrates, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Yes, label them with a, with a crime of treason, saying, there is another king, Jesus. Now what's happening here is classic Christianity at play. True Christianity confronts the false religions and paganism of the cultures. Whether it's with the Jews here, or the followers of Diana in chapter 19, or some woman with divination in chapter 16, or the streets of post-Christian America in our day. True Christianity confronts the idols of cultures. True Christianity comes into conflict with the idols of cultures, and that is what is happening here. So there's this tumult that is taking place. Notice this form of true Christianity is wholly opposite of American Christianity and all the Christianity of the West in our day, which tries to accommodate itself to the world, to live in peaceful coexistence with the world, to appease and conform to the world, even to where it can live in peaceful coexistence and accommodate itself to homosex, when homosex is condemned in the word of God and see spot-run fashion. Amen? We have to ask, where are the men who fear God here in America in our day? As we don't see acts to Christianity in America today. 
when we read the book of Acts, we see men of a different caliber. And so I ask, where are the men who fear God? All of present-day Christianity tries to effeminize men. Just look at their programs, just look at their books, look at the behaviors you're cajoled into, conforming to. All of present-day Christianity tries to effeminize men, to make men into women. It's not bad to be a woman. It's glorious to be a woman. That's what God made you. But if you're a man and you're being made into a woman, that's bad. It's as bad as a woman being made into a man. They condemn and they cajole manly behavior. American Christianity does. And that the world is screaming for men who love God to speak. The world is screaming for men who love God to act. That is what is needed. Someone sent me what their pastor had said at Sanctity of Life Sunday last week or two weeks ago. And when I read it, I thought to myself, how is that possible for a man to talk in such an effeminized manner? It's because they've been taught to talk like that. The world is egalitarian and wants no differences between males and females, and the church is on that ship, fishing hook, line, and sinker the very same way. They bought it all. Where are the men who are going to be men and speak and act as is needed in our day? Biblical Christianity confronts the tyrants and evil of their age, And here we see it in our text, in Acts 17. These who have turned the world upside down. This means those who have caused trouble. That's what that means. Those who have caused trouble. It means those who are declaring something contrary to what we have known. That's what it means, turn the world upside down. Biblical Christianity does it all. It causes troubles and conflict because it confronts the idols and thinking and evil of the culture. They hit head on. We declare his rule. Notice what they say. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. We declare his rule. And though we know they were not in any way completely contrary to the decrees of Caesar, because Christian men and women are the best of citizens, we obey where we can. We conform where there is no conflict with God's law or word. But to them, this is what they noted most about the apostles. To them, this is what they are all about. This is an attack upon our filthy way of life, a possible end to our status quo here in Thessalonica. They have turned the world upside down. They are acting contrary to Caesar's decrees. They are declaring another king's rule. These wicked men got that. They realized it. And yet we live in the midst of a Christianity that doesn't even want anything to do with Christ's rule. Lives off in this little enclave called Christianity. A little sewer. A little ghetto off to the side of culture. Doesn't come into conflict with it doesn't confront it, doesn't confront the evil and the idols and the tyrants of our nation, 
just wants to live its little passive, narcissistic life over in the corner, and it sickens me to watch it. This is true Christianity, what's happening here. And this is what we should be doing in our nation and culture. And yet most pulpits act like sheepish little whores who teach that we should conform to the evil edicts of Caesar, that there should never be a conflict, and if there is, those Christians causing it are bad Christians, and that we are always to obey the state. Conflict is bad, confrontation should be avoided, accommodation and appeasement must be sought. That is the thinking and mindset of the pulpits and Christians in America, and it's wholly opposite of early Christianity, which came into massive conflict and confrontation with the cultures and nations of the world and transformed the world and does so today where the whore-like Christianity that we have in America still isn't prevalent. Christianity continues to expand in many Asian countries, many Latin American countries, many African countries. And we're under some stupid spell here with this form of Christianity we have. And I say, where are the men of God that will say, away with this bauble, and in fealty and faithfulness and love for Christ will stand against this religious idiocy and confront the idols and tyrants of our culture? Where are they? Shake yourselves free, brothers and sisters, from American Christianity. It's nothing more than a cheap whore who will sell itself for a morsel consumed with its narcissism and its consumerism and its pedestalism. It's disgusting to watch. Get on your knees before God. Cry out to him. Humble yourself before him. Cry for him to make a burning in your heart to make him known to men, to point men to Jesus and to his rule, both the people and the magistrates, as the early church did as men throughout history of Christianity have done, and unlike our Christianity today. Look at verse 8. It says, And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. Yes, the rulers of the city, the magistrates, were troubled. A conflict was taking place. This was a battle of jurisdictions. You know, the world and the kingdom of God (laughs) were confronting each other. And there was trouble. Christ was being proclaimed. Christ's kingdom and rule not only impacts men, but the governments of men. Not only changes individuals, but changes nations. And as his ambassadors, we are to declare his law and word to the people and to the magistrates. And all of history proves it to be true. And yet the whores who fill America's pulpits in our day sit in their pious rot, swallowing camels and straining at gnats. And it's grievous to the hearts of men. We must shake ourselves, brothers. We need a move of the Holy Spirit in our lives, brothers and sisters. It's needed. We have a nation in utter rebellion against God. We have a Christianity and utter compromise against him, against the Lord. We must do right. We must make sure our lives count. We must do right in our homes and do right in the marketplace. We must do right with the magistrates and with all our fellow man. Look at verse 9. 
It says, so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The magistrates did not have the actual alleged instigators, did they? They didn't have Paul and Silas. So a security or bond was taken from Jason and the other believers. And what this most likely consisted of, according to historians and scholars, is that they had to give the magistrates money as a security and certain promises had to be made of actions. The security being that there would be no more trouble and that Paul and Silas would not be allowed in the city. Hence verse 10. Look what it says. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul and Silas had to leave. But this did not mean the gospel ceased to go forward. Did you hear what I said? This did not mean the gospel ceased to go forward just because Paul and Silas had to leave. We know this from 1 Thessalonians, that the gospel did, in fact, continue to go forward, even in spite of the persecution and afflictions the Jews were imposing upon them via the arm of the magistrates. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we'll read verses 2 through 10. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. Look what Paul says to them. He says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all of Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Did you hear that? For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Others had heard of their affliction, and yet, in the midst of it, they continued to proclaim the gospel. They continued to live as Christian men and Christian women, and it was impacting the entire region. And others in other places were encouraged by their faithfulness. Verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. The Jews continued their persecutions, yet they continued faithful in what God had given them to do. Look at what it says in chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from their own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. The Thessalonians, Thessalonians were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen for their embrace of Christ. And just as those who embraced Christ in Jerusalem were persecuted by others in Judea, they were being persecuted by their fellow countrymen too. But that didn't stop them. It goes on and says in verse 15, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they do 
not please God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles. This is the persecution, the harassment, the afflictions the Jews were putting upon them, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Many scholars believe it was this security that was taken that continued to hinder him from visiting with them. But in the midst of the affliction, in the midst of the persecution, they continued faithful to Christ and moved forward, making Christ known to men, making his rule known to men. So Paul and Silas left Thessalonica and went down the Via Ignatia. That's the road they followed for 100 miles already, the Via Ignatia. Another 50 miles now they go to Berea, verse 10, back there at Acts, chapter 17. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, which was their usual custom. And here they do it again. And look what happens, verses 11 and 12. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. These Jews and God-fearers were much more fair-minded, which means they actually considered the apostles' arguments and compared them to Scripture, something most Americans have never considered doing. Most Americans would rather mock and parrot the slogans of their professors and their entertainers, having never looked into the Word of God themselves. But when people are willing to do so, willing to look into the Word of God, and we're willing to study the Scriptures with them, if they're willing to do it, look what happens. People believe. People believe. It says, quote, many of them believed, unquote. So we need to offer to have Bible studies with people, our neighbors, our co-workers, others we have come into contact with. We should offer Bible study with them. This is biblical to do. So Thessalonica saw a tumult. Here in Berea, we see a study. This is all part of Christianity. You do not have to keep yourself on a hype. You don't have to have a tumult to think you're accomplishing something. It does happen at times, however. There can be tumults. There can be simple, quiet studies. (laughs) Amen? You simply faithfully serve him And he and his word burns in your heart. He burns in your heart. You want to make him known to others. You can't not talk. You can't shut up. Me and Clara were in Mexico last week. We're like the pariah. (laughs) You become the pariah. Because we don't shut up. We're in Mexico. We ain't talking about Jesus. Ain't talking about homosex. We ain't talking about abortion. We're in Mexico. We're on vacation. What? You don't take a vacation from your Christianity. 
<laughs> you don't take a vacation from who you are in Christ. Amen? And it's amazing how people will talk to you all day about dopey little stuff. But if you talk about the two things everybody tells you you shouldn't talk about, politics or religion, suddenly you're the most awful person on the planet. You say something against homosex? Oh yeah, they loved you up until that point. It's disgusting. And people who are all smiles at the beginning, never look at you again as you're going around the resort. You know, It is sad. But this is what Christ calls us to, amen? To be faithful to him, to be true to him, to make him known to men wherever we're at. And our hearts should burn within us where we can't be quiet, where we must speak, where we must make him known to men. And there's no greater goodness than having that burning within the heart. So all these people believe, but then look what happens in verse 13. It says, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. You ever notice wicked people are far more tenacious than righteous people, generally speaking? I mean, we're going to travel 50 miles. It wasn't like they jumped in a lift or a Uber, you know, and got carried over there or something like that. It's 50 miles over to that place. It meant that much to them to mess up the Christians, to try to destroy what God was doing in the hearts and lives of men, that they travel 50 miles to cause trouble, to stir up the crowds and cause problems. So the Jews keep afflicting and persecuting the Christians, and they did it through the force of law, by the arm of the state utilizing the magistrates for evil. They stir up the crowds and caused riots, opposed the gospel and Christ's rule in the lives of men. You do know magistrates don't like riots, right? They're not like their favorite thing. Oh, awesome. We get to tase some people. We get to mace some people and gas them, you know. Now, most magistrates prefer there not being a riot than there being a riot, So the Jews would cause these tumults even when men were simply doing a study of the Scriptures. Simply doing a study of the Scriptures. And they create a tumult, knowing this will get the magistrates' attention. Magistrates don't like riots. They will get rid of the Christians. They would do this so they could employ the magistrates for their own ends. And wicked men are good at employing the magistrates for their own ends. Remember Rome at this time had just expelled the Jews from the city? Remember when I went through the book of Romans, I talked about this? How there was all these conflicts between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians because the Jews had been gone for three years, and though it was mostly made up of Jewish believers prior to them being kicked out of Rome, it became prevalently Gentile believers. They come back together after three years, and there's these conflicts going on between the Jewish believers and the general, that's the main reason much of the book of Romans was written. This happened, of course, in 49 AD by the edict of Emperor Claudius. Suetonius said it was due to, quote, constant riots at the instigation of Crestus, with a capital C, which many scholars believe is a reference to Christ. And surely these magistrates have heard, had heard of what had happened in Rome. 
so they would be anxious to quell anything in Berea. And we know this was around the time all that happened, because look what it says in the very next chapter of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 2, and he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So we know this, these riots were going on in Rome over Christ and Christianity. This is the history of Christianity. You think about the Christians of our day. You go on a campus, you say something, some people go berserk and act crazy, and all the Christians are mad at you. This can't be of God. This can't be of God. This would never be of God. There's trouble here. There's conflict. You're ruining everything we've spent the last four years building. You've destroyed it in one day. Well, then you've built a piss-poor house. That's what I say. Here, riots are breaking out all over to the point over Jesus that they have to throw all the Jews out of Rome. <laughs> it's like unbelievable, right? You read the book of Acts and you see what's going on. And yet today, American Christianity, any kind of conflict, any confrontation, melt into the woodwork. That can't be Jesus. That can't be him. Can't be of God. Surely these magistrates had heard of what had happened in Rome, so they would be anxious to quell anything in Berea. And we know this was prevalent at this very time, based on Acts chapter 18, verse 2. So it says in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 17, Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So Paul's got to go. He's the main instigator. You know he had one of those personalities. <laughs> you know, so it's like Silas and, and Timothy are able to continue on in Berea. But Paul, who was usually the main orator, or viewed as the main orator, had to leave, had to move on. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. That's where we stop today. And we will complete the rest of the chapter and see what happens in Athens, Greece, next week. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer.